In the world of manufacturing, change is the only constant. How are small and medium-sized manufacturers, SMMs, to keep up with new technologies, regulations, and other important shifts, let alone leverage them to become leaders in their industries? Shifting Gears, a podcast from CMTC, highlights leaders from the modern world of manufacturing, from SMMs to consultants to industry experts. Each quarter, we go deep into topics pertinent to both operating a manufacturing firm and the industry as a whole. Join us to hear about the manufacturing sector's latest trends, groundbreaking technologies, and expert insights to help SMMs in California set themselves apart in this exciting modern world of innovation and change. I'm Greg Profesich, Director of Advanced Manufacturing Technologies at CMTC, and I'd like to welcome you. In this episode, I'm joined by Rob Leitner, co-founder of East Brother Beer Company, Lynn Juden, owner of Itsy Bitty, and Derek Haney, Chief E-Commerce Technologist at eCommerceTech.io. Rob, Lynn, and Derek discuss the recent boom in e-commerce and how it's evolved over the years. The group offers insights on their individual journeys with e-commerce and how it has changed their businesses. The group closes with lessons learned and advice for those just starting out, including how to leverage one's online presence to sell better and tools that help them get started. Welcome, Rob, Lynn, and Derek. It's great to have you all here today. Great to be here. Thanks. Good to be here. So before we get into our discussion today, let's take a few minutes for each of you to introduce yourself and give an overview of your company and who the majority of your customers are. Rob, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Rob Leitner. I'm one of the co-founders of East Brother Beer Company in Richmond, California. We've been around about four years. We're a production brewery, which means we produce beer to put in kegs and cans out into stores and restaurants and bars and grocery and liquor stores and whatnot. We also have an on-site tap room here in Richmond where you come and sample the beer live. Excellent, Rob. Thank you so much. Hope to get up to the Bay Area and uh, have a chance to enjoy that tap room. So if I understand correctly, your, your business model is B2C. You'll be talking from that perspective today. That's right. Okay. And Lynn? Hi, I'm Lynn Juden. I am the owner of Itsy Bitty. We're a woman and minority-owned family business. We're pretty small. We're about three employees. And it really started as a passion project after my first child was born. As a first-time mom, you know, we started accumulating a lot of junk because we were trying so many baby products. And so it was obvious that we wanted to try something different with toys and, and baby products that were sustainable. So that's essentially what we offer, baby products and gifts, and we sell globally. Excellent. Lynn, thank you so much. So if I understand it correctly, you're also B2C. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then Derek, thank you for being here. You come from a little bit different background. So for context, can you tell us a little bit about what e-commerce is and maybe how it's evolved over the past few years? Yeah. So I'm the founder of ecommercetech.io. We connect e-commerce teams with e-commerce tools. And so I literally spend half of my day demoing new technology and then the other half of the day helping merchants figure out which the right tech tools are for them. So as it comes to the industry at large and what we've seen in the last few years in e-commerce, we've seen a natural proliferation of the industry in which you've seen it become a lot easier to become an entrepreneur, to start a business. And many of these businesses now have grown into that billion dollar plus threshold. So it's not just a small time business, it can grow and it can scale. And there are platforms out there that are helping you, you know, Shopify, WooCommerce, Magento, all of these. And then because of the proliferation of e-commerce, we're also seeing a massive proliferation of e-commerce technology, tools that are enabling merchants to do cooler, better things, helping with return management, manufacturing and supply chain, of course, 
conversion rate optimization. We have AI coming into play here. And all of these things are just a, really the beginning of what we could say a form of consolidation in the market, where you are seeing these technologies come together as, as, as the, quote, all-in-one tools. There's no real such thing, but some people like to call themselves that. And that presents an interesting problem to merchants as they look across the landscape and really try to figure out what, what's right for them. So a lot of different aspects and dimensions to facets to the e-commerce industry and the plethora of tools that are out there. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So now that we know a little bit about each of you and what you do, let's talk a little bit about your e-commerce journeys. So Rob and Lynn, what led you to the decision to begin selling online? And how did you develop your capability to use e-commerce as a sales channel for your business? And Lynn, why don't you go first? So I really wanted to sell online because I wanted a wider reach, considering that when we design and manufacture and source, it is global. Many of our products are made and manufactured over in either China or Vietnam. And so I just thought, you know, having the, the ability and the platform to sell globally, since we already do operations globally, it just made sense. Okay. And Rob, your decision? It was driven by panic and terror. <laughs> Due to, due to COVID, um, we did not start at all with the intention of selling beer online. In fact, we were just selling T-shirts and caps and merch, basically merch and swag, because people like to get that, and you can you can get that you know further afield. But beer is a very it, it's not a it's not a product that lends itself to e-commerce. It's heavy. It's fragile. And it's regulated, right? It's also regulated to a degree. Exactly. I mean, that's actually, you've hit on probably the most challenging part with beer specifically and each kind of alcohol, wine and spirits and beer, they're all regulated differently in terms of e-commerce. But the bottom line for us was that two-thirds of our channels were cut off with bars and restaurants closed and our own tap room closed, you know, forcibly closed due to the pandemic. And so... Everyone in this industry, at least, and of course, many others were scrambling and we, we thought, okay, how are we going to continue to get some beer out there and, and keep the lights on? So that was the trigger for us. So it started with panic and terror and turned out to be, you know, lemons became lemonade? <laughs> yeah, we're still working on it. We certainly have not perfected <laughs> it, but it's, yeah, it definitely helped a lot. Okay. Excellent. So Derek, I'm sure Robin Lynn's stories sound familiar to you. Yeah. Is there a pattern that you can identify in these types of manufacturing companies that have been part of this e-commerce boom, if you will, over the recent months? And is it mostly B2C or are we also seeing it in the B2B space? Yeah, I think Lynn's journey is part of the, I saw a need and I solved it. And then Rob's is like, uh, yeah, we just wanted, you know, to sell beer and and all of a sudden uh, invest in this. So I've, I've definitely seen this before. When it comes to identifying successful merchants, I, I think it's always about finding the right niche and the, the right opportunity, as well as having very core strengths across a variety of things, including Product, so really understanding your supply chain and how you're going to get this product procured at a reasonable rate. Are you going to own your own manufacturing? Are you going to put products in a warehouse? Are you going to ship from your own house? What does it look like when your garage is filled up with boxes and your children are now working to put the product in the box to fulfill on your orders? Um, then I think there's a strong operational and financial sense that needs to come in to e-commerce early. And so as I've seen a lot of founders with great ideas, I've seen a lot of them fall flat because 
they couldn't manage to find profitability in the finances. They didn't understand the core of their business model and business metrics. And ultimately, they couldn't scale to the point where cost of acquisition was going to be lower than lifetime value. So I think that one is is very core to the merchant success story. And then, of course, the most important one is marketing. And this is why the niche is so important. If we want to just buy some generic products, we go to Amazon. Uh, There's beer probably, I don't know, is there beer sold on Amazon? I'm not sure. But I know that there are a lot of kids' toys sold on Amazon. They'll send you to Whole Foods Yeah, these days. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can buy from the delivery, right? So right. I guess I've actually bought yeah, alcohol through that delivery uh, through Amazon Fresh recently. So there's competition that we could just go to the generic provider. And, and there's a lot of other kind of established players in the space. And so when you think about marketing and the market as a whole, you think, how am I going to penetrate a market such as, you know, beer or CPG? How am I going to penetrate a market such as kids' toys and goods when there's all these players in it? And the only way to really have success with that is by pioneering some sort of niche or what is currently being called a digitally native vertical brand, which is just a fancy word for selling one or a handful of really specific products and doing a really good job in that vertical. Things like Timbuktu for backpacks for tech, you know, Dollar Shave Club obviously had the low cost razors as one of the pioneers, a way for luggage that has uh, technology and batteries inside of it. And, And so you think about how these different brands have owned these key categories and been able to pioneer what have primarily been well-dominated in red ocean spaces, but come with this blue ocean strategy from a marketing and market standpoint, whether it's, you know, direct to consumer and virality on social media, whether it's just how you do your emails. I've seen a few brands that just have like outrageous emails that you just have to go tell a friend about. One of them, comes to mind as this company, 1900 Ice Cream, as an example, just randomly off the top of my head, their emails are ridiculous and they just make you want to buy ice cream online, uh, which is, which is, you know, interesting. And so, so yeah, I think the commonalities in, in real success stem from uh, great product and understanding of that product. How is that product going to be truly differentiated in the marketplace? And how are we really going to reach the mass consumer in a reasonable acquisition cost is really what we're going for there. But of course, it really comes all the way into brand strategy. And then who's running the numbers and how are we going to keep cash flow and our, our heads above water while we invest in all this inventory and have to pay for all these ads and have to you know manage the gap from buying on the manufacturer all the way to selling to the to the end consumer. So Derek, thank you for that. Uh, some great information. And, and I think a lot of that was around the, you know, the new company, the startup company, the early stage company. Can you talk a little bit more about what established and mature businesses might do? What are the things that they're going to have to consider? What are some of the constraints? What are some of the opportunities that e-commerce offers to them? Yeah, I I think when you think about manufacturers moving into direct-to-consumer, there's always been an opportunity there, right? This is just kind of in a way about moving down your own vertical supply chain, right? So I've seen in other industries, uh, you know, somebody that started, a, a friend, my father's friend, started as a framing developer, framing homes. He ended up buying, you know, a lumber plant and he did a full vertical integration so that he sold his lumber to himself and then he built the house with that lumber. And I think that's what manufacturers have the opportunity of doing is moving downstream in this regard. It's significantly different, though, 
And where I've seen the biggest miss in this is how we're capturing end user personal identifiable information and then continuing the conversation with them. So what I mean is, especially if you were in retail or other locations, you were selling a product and you've got your product in the hands of tens of thousands of people, but you don't know who they are. And so if, if you've got phenomenal products and you've got resellers out there for those products, how do we close the loop so that that person is now coming back to you in a direct-to-consumer channel? A few ways that like can be done is changing the product. You can even change the tag on the clothing or on the bottom of the beer or inside the cap. You can you know put a little hashtag or something like that. Then people are using a hashtag on social. You can use that to follow up with them to capture that personal identifiable information, build that one-to-one relationship with them, and then use that to spring you know the direct-to-consumer channel into full force using what you already have, which is a product that is in the hands of a lot of people. You just don't currently know who those people are. So thank you for that, Derek. Rob or Lynn, any comments to what Derek had just said? Strike any chords with you? You know, our experience working with um, the different wholesalers and warehouses, uh, our manufacturers, I can tell you that within the last year, you know, of course, during COVID, we had to really plan our inventory. We had to really decide on what we were going to produce and plan early on because, you know, to your question earlier, Greg, about um, how has this pandemic affected the business, I can feel so many competitors getting into the space right now. I guess everyone had that bright idea to start an e-commerce business, and it's going to be interesting to see how many of them really last. But we feel the constraints of the manufacturers not delivering on time. We feel it from the procurement not getting in on time, the deliveries and, and mm-hmm. so forth. So it's, it's been a pretty interesting ride. So thank you, Derek, Rob, and Lynn. At this point, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your e-commerce journeys. Right? We understand why you got into it in the first place from your earlier comments. What have you learned? Where are you now? Where do you see yourself going kind of thing? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, the jury's still out, honestly. There is something there for us. As I said earlier, primarily our model is selling to people come into the tap room and order a pint or take away a four-pack or selling out into a distributor who then sells to retailers. While things were shut down, we definitely sensed and benefited from fans of our beer not able to 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 enjoy it on site or at their favorite bar or restaurant and therefore they were very open to an e-commerce model and it was comprised of a couple different things in some some ways you know we, we created this store we already had a store as i said for like merch but we added beer to it which was complicated by the way but once we did that we could we would either send it to them or they could come do curbside pickup but now that things are opening up again that has has decreased because people are like, oh, good, I can go out and you know have a pint of my favorite, my favorite bar. For us, it's uh, we're still trying to figure out how long this is going to last. And one thing that we did, which was the idea of uh, some breweries have done it, and the idea of our, our marketing folks was to do a subscription box, and that one seems to have legs. So we're really, really happy with that. There's still people out there who who don't want to go out, and and so something where you know we say put your beer on redial. And we just send you the, you know, the same four packs or case or whatever on a, on a monthly basis. So that's um, something that we anticipate continuing. But honestly, the, the need that was filled while everything was shut down, now that everything's opening back up again, that, you know, maybe that need isn't there anymore. So it's an interesting, like I said, we're still kind of waiting to see how it all plays out. Rob, I think that's awesome that you guys innovated. <laughs> I'll just say that. Thank you. It was, it was really tricky. And like I said, beer is tough because... 
you know, it's like pack, the packaging, it's a fragile thing, the cans get dinged up, and which, which carrier you use, the website that we were using would auto-populate, you know, tax and shipping, and we couldn't do that because those carriers wouldn't deliver beer, and there was a lot of challenges to it. But, you know, you send it out and it sits on someone's porch or sits in, you know, some warehouse for a, for a week and then, you know, in 80-degree weather, and, and it's like, never mind, send that back, we'll send you some fresh stuff. So there was a lot of challenges in, the, in this particular uh, product category. I love that you went to subscription. Um, yeah, I'm curious about like retention metrics around that. I think you're you're in a consumable, renewable space, and uh, if people love the beer, they're going to want to get more of it. So, so I'd imagine you have a, a good opportunity to to grow that and you know yeah. into the into the hundreds of thousands of subscribers, you know, level. Yeah. If we had a hundred thousand people buying beer on a monthly basis, dude, we'd hang it up. We'd be done. <laughs> it's, it's possible. It's doable. It's, yeah, I was gonna say that's your goal. That's your goal. I love it. Yeah. What do you do to uh, to keep people buying beer from you again and again to keep that fridge stocked, essentially, right? You know. So here's here's something that that our tapper manager came up with. It's awesome. Every month we have a different theme. So like sometimes you know we partner with a with a coffee roastery recently and did a little thing because coffee and beer is sort of a thing. And, and we put a, a bag of their, and they're an Oakland based small coffee roaster called Proyecto Diaz. They're great. It's great coffee. I don't know where you guys are all living and located, but I'm in Walnut Creek, by the way. So I'm going to be checking you out. Yeah. <laughs> so we put a bag of coffee in the box. It was like a coffee themed box. Another one we did, we did like movie night. We put like a bag of popcorn and some, I don't know, some little swaggy stuff that's like movie themed. And so, and what, and what are some of the other ones we've done? I think we did a chocolate one. Um, so, so each month you get the beer that you ordered, but you also get this little treat, you know, that's, that's, we just throw it in there and, and people love it. So it's, I think it's, I think it's a way to build anticipation. It's like, we don't get the same stuff every month and get bored as a result, but I get, I get white order. Plus what is this month's theme going to be? That's working pretty well. Yeah. You're discussing the difference between uh, renewable and a discovery so subscription product. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of combining them both, which I think is really smart. So you have this uh, core consumable, renewable product that I expect with this variable, what other surprise am I going to get? So I think that works really well. Well, that's awesome that you guys shifted gears that way from going from brick and mortar to online. Cause we were pretty much the same way. We started off selling our bags, um, introducing it to people who had similar needs. The first product that we came out with was actually called the Biddy Bag, and it was to carry a lot of breastfeeding tools and supplies without having to look like a crazy bag person with different, you know, baggies. Because of the marketing that we did, we actually expanded and decided to go online. So, Similar to you guys, where you shifted online, it was the same process, but just different needs, I guess. It wasn't a pandemic that drove us to go online. And I can tell you now that with Itsy Bitty, the biggest thing that we're facing right now is scaling and scaling correctly, right? Because there's a lot of components with the business that we just want to make sure that we continue offering the the customer service and the the quality products, but also doing at a, a price point that makes sense for everybody. And I have a question for you, Lynn. So Derek mentioned the you know customer acquisition and making the connections and the person you know I, I, I identification basically. How do you guys go about you know building your list and building your audience and 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 making those connections and then continuing to engage with people to to not only maintain interest in you, you know, amongst existing customers, but add new customers. 
Yeah, that's a good question. So my background is in marketing. I actually own a brand agency. <laughs> so I'm going to turn to marketing and say that this is really what's driving our success. We have a lot of different tactics that we, we implement, things like influencer marketing, and we do a lot of email marketing. We, we work a lot within the paid ad space as well. I, I feel like because I had the foundation of marketing, it was easier for us to get online. Whereas I don't know how a lot of companies out there are doing it if they don't have that background because there's so much to take in, right? Like there's a lot of strategy that needs to be put in place. When we think about e-commerce, there's multi-channel, right? And then there's also omni-channel. And in this case, when we talk about the different channels, there's social, so the Instagram, the Pinterest, and the Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the different marketplaces, such as the Etsy's and even Amazon, if you want to go that route. There's, and then the traditional online, which is your store, and then offline, which is your brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the digital stuff that we do, it's definitely within the social and then the different marketplaces, as well as running a couple of different ads across Facebook, Google, and Pinterest, because that's where our target market is. Interesting. Yeah, there's definitely parallels with with our business in terms of the influencer marketing. Right. You know, we send out samples and hope that people post them and, you know, talk about them and share with their friends. But but we also do, you know, paid advertising as well, try to get people to, you know, build the brand, show them where the product is. So, so we actually do it, you know, we, we've got the e-commerce bit, but then you know, most of our business is still brick and mortar. So we're, we're doing the advertising to send people to where, the, where our product is. Yeah. Another strategy that we use quite a bit is actually our, our customer loyalty. So I think that we're, we're kind of touching back on something that uh, Derek mentioned earlier, right? And, and it was the idea that, you know, we're going we're gonna to go direct to consumer now with our e-commerce marketplace. And, and then we have to capture their user info and start nurturing those relationships. And I think both of you are kind of talking around that, that idea also. You know, where does e-commerce meet inbound marketing? And, you know, the, the lead nurturing workflow to get people to, be, if number one, be aware of you to all the way through the pipeline to being you know, regular repeat customers who are advocates for you and sharing about you on social media. Let's talk a little bit about that and some of the efforts there. Derek, any, any kind of pointers on how to do that right and what some of the best practices are? Yeah, um, I could speak to this for, for hours on end, but uh, let, let's start maybe with the, the tools that we, we have at our disposal for, for this, uh, let's call it full funnel marketing all the way from, um, you know, the influencer sparks the idea that I need this product. So they see, you know, the, the end con- uh, customer sees you on Instagram and they go, oh, I would like this beer or I would like this bag or I would like this product, right? They come to the site, and how are we going to convince them to purchase? So that is, you know, cliche called conversion rate optimization, but a few basic principles of of it that I think are always important. Reviews and having the right review tool in place, showing that you've got a lot of reviews makes people feel very comfortable. And if you don't have a lot of reviews, then just showing people that are really happy with the product and highlighting one or two big reviews. You can also put the influencer into the review platform itself so that you're showing the same person that that influencer maybe came over from. Then once we get kind of closer to the purchase, cross-sells and upsells are a really important part of that final stage of the funnel, as well as our abandoned cart sequences across email, SMS, and possibly other channels. And then once they've purchased, we, we just kind of hinted at it, loyalty, having a loyalty tool and loyalty program in place so that we can incentivize telling a friend, so that we can incentivize repeat purchases, so we can say, oh, you're going to buy our beer instead of their beer because we're better and we have a community and we have a relationship with you that is already established. 
And so the, I think those are some of the main components of it. Yeah. So, so Rob and Lynn, what have your experiences been along those things that Derek was just mentioning? You know, the, the whole full funnel and then the, the ongoing community kind of aspect of it. What have you done in your efforts to try to build those? We've been doing everything that Derek had mentioned. <laughs> so, and I, again, I guess it's because we're familiar with it. You know, I, I feel like in one of the first things that we did when we got online, other than create the site itself, was build out our sequence. We understood how important it was for that customer journey for them to go through. In addition to that, you know, running different campaigns simultaneously to get the brand exposure, or at least build the brand exposure. And then after that, of course, making sure that we maintain the clients that we've already built in because, you know, as you guys know, it's much more expensive to acquire a client than to maintain them. But a lot of businesses actually don't even think about the maintenance side of it. So that's that's something that it's full circle that people should consider. And that's what we, I think that's why we're able to become successful and, and maintain what we've had. Yeah, I think, you know, given that we're Again, kind of a, I wouldn't even call us a hybrid business. I mean, honestly, most of our sales are brick and mortar, but in thinking about e-commerce and how this has become a complementary or maybe supplementary component of our business, we obviously want to continue that because prior to the pandemic, we, we didn't think about it at all. You know, in many ways, that's the way the world is going. E-commerce continues to, you know, increase every year. It's something, something we want to continue to focus on. And we have, in our modest way, the full complement of marketing from influencer marketing to email newsletters to our, you know, to our existing fans to digital advertising on multiple platforms that, you know, paid advertising. So we've got the earned and the paid. But we found that we're always in sort of the brand building business. Any, any company, any brand is. You know, a lot of the communications we put out will say, find our beer at a retailer near you and you can click on it and find where we're sold. Or you know, have the beer shipped directly to you or have it delivered or come for curbside pickup. So we always have those explicit call to actions. And we find that when we include those in our communications, they actually work. You know, you got to remind yourself it's a it's a cluttered world and people are pelted all day long with everything. But when you make it easy, click here, get your stuff, you're great. Another thing that we did, we put a program in place called Beer Thy Neighbor. And it's the curbside thing. So meaning you buy it online, you, the transaction's all done online, but then you come to the brewery and pick it up. And we would give you an option to buy one extra can, whatever you're, whatever you're buying, a four-pack or a case or whatever, you could buy one extra can, but you wouldn't get it. The next person who came in would get it. And you wouldn't know who that is, but you just bought a beer you know, for like three bucks. We made it super cheap. But then that made it so that someone rolled in to pick up their order and, and we said, oh, the person who just came before you, bought you a beer. Here you go for free. And it's like, people love that. Didn't really cost us much, but it really built a lot of goodwill, especially in a time when, you know, people were feeling isolated and anxious and and needing a little goodness and joy in the world. And, you know, can of beer can do that. So there's little things like that. Um, Again, that's, I mean, we, we did that in the physical world, but it really took place in the on the e-commerce platform. So it was something that, again, we were just looking for ways to not only, you know, again, bring some joy to people, but honestly, selfishly distinguish ourselves and try to make ourselves a little more memorable. Excellent, excellent points. Uh, I think those are very creative ways and very simple things that can be done, right? But as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, how important it is to have a well-thought-out user experience. Stand in the customer's shoes and figure out what they're going to experience when they come onto your site and how they go through it and make it as easy as possible. Make it as easy for them to get get to what they want and interact and move on with the other things in their very busy, cluttered lives. I think those are some, some key things I took away from this portion of the conversation. Let's talk a little bit more about your, your internal learnings. What did you learn about your business and, and or your industry when you started selling online? 
Rob, why don't you take this one first? <laughs> if you look into the alcohol industry and do some reading and research, you'll find that the wine industry is way, way more sophisticated and further out than the beer industry. The wine lobby is much more um, unified and stronger such that you can ship, if you're a winery, you can ship to all 50 states with little issue, no regulatory problems. With beer right now, I think there's about a dozen, which means the vast majority of states, I can't even ship beer to because of regulations in those states. They're all very state-centric and they're all different. We learned that it's very complicated. Um, even shipping, you know, the U.S. post office won't ship beer. And so we had, uh, you know, we've got a Squarespace website and it would auto-populate with USPS with a freight number and a tax. And we'd, uh, we, we had to create all these like workarounds on the platform itself. Realize that it, the, the platforms always aren't always set up for the particular product that you're, you're trying to sell. And that's probably going to be an ex- a common experience for everyone, right? The, the, the platforms are set up to be generic marketplaces, yes, which means that they're, they're, they're marginally good at least for everybody, but not perfectly good for anybody. Exactly. Right? Yeah. There's always going to be a little bit of customization or a little bit of workaround we can expect because the nature of the platforms, right? They're, they're meant to be very broadly applicable. So they have to have, have things that are in common in place as functionalities and things that are very specific to an industry, not going to probably be there. Yeah. One other big challenge for us is um, delivery. And this is this gets to the ABC, the California ABC, and any other state you go to, you can only, since it's alcohol, it, it has to be accepted and signed for by someone 21 and older. And mm-hmm. we are re- held responsible for this because we're the licensed entity that's selling the product. But in some cases, we're relying on you know some delivery person who who isn't thinking and just goes up to the, doesn't read the instructions that we explicitly print on the box and just leaves it on the, on the porch and, and drives away. And, you know, that puts us at risk. So we've had to spend a lot of time um, in education and, uh, you know, communications on the box and communications with our, with our freight carriers to make sure that we're not putting ourselves in, in, a, in a risky situation. And so, Lynn, I'll ask the question to you. What did you learn about your business or industry when you started selling online? Operational-wise, I would say that the biggest challenge or the biggest learning that I've had so far is with the different technologies. I would say that we're pretty savvy when it comes to understanding different technologies, you know, understanding how things integrate. But very similar to what you were saying earlier, you know, not one size fits all. And there's a lot of customization that happens even on the e-commerce end, you know, just your site alone. You can't just depend on a theme. And then whenever you have to worry about the fulfillment and inventory management, good grief, right? Like um, we're, we're having to manage not only on the manufacturing side when things are coming through, but on the design side, on our side, right? It's just there, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of pieces of which I, I completely underestimated going into it. Definitely learnings in all cases. And most of those learnings mean opportunity, right? Depending on how we wanted to look at them and respond to them. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about your online stores in particular. Yeah. You were talking about the um, customer experience. For a little while, we had a situation where you filled out the form with your address and then it took you somewhere and you had to do it again, which is just awful. I mean, who... You know, just this online world we live in, we're constantly having to put our information in, right? So you want to you want to minimize that to the extent possible. So we have to figure out a way to change that because you're going to lose them. But we really thought a lot about that experience. Minimizing that friction is sort of like paramount to maximizing the experience and people's feeling good about you. Because when you when you don't have a good experience, like I'm not going back there. That's like the last thing you want them to think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and Lynn, your experience. 
Yeah, I would say the only other thing that we ran into hurdle-wise with setup was the the tax, similar to what you were saying, Rob. You know, mm-hmm. you have a lot of limitations with your business, I would say. A lot of limitations and restrictions. But with us, tax, just because we have to think about our global reach, that was a bit of a challenge. There are tools that help with duties and taxes internationally, and um, a couple of them. Let's see, one that comes to mind is, I think, Avalara. And then Zonos is another one. And I think when you, yeah, when you start international expansion, it's very complicated. I'm, I'm uh, by no means a master at it. You, but um, that's exactly one key moment where you open up this door of all the tools you need to go internationally. And of course, you've got to figure out manufacturing. Can I get a warehouse in Europe? Can I get a warehouse in Asia to, to house, house this and distribute from there instead of shipping all the way from the United States? Or the worst idea would be, I'm, I'm securing my supply chain from Asia, shipping to the United States and then sending the product back to Asia for, for the end customer, right? Uh, that is a lot of wasted travel time for, for your product. Um, and and then you mentioned inventory management. And I think as we expand internationally, expand our warehouses, how do we understand the management at various warehouses? And how do we keep that inventory balanced? Oh my gosh, it's a big problem. So predicting supply chain becomes much more um, valuable. And then of course, there are a few tools in the in the inventory management space that are that have become pretty good at doing that. But usually they're only good at predicting the sales of products that you've already had. And Lynn, it sounds like you have a lot of new products that you come out with on a regular basis, which that's, so you have a very big problem of, of how much product do we procure and where do we put it in what warehouses. And then, you know, if you're wrong by even just a little bit, your margins go, you know, go, go down and then you've, you're, you're not profitable. And so, uh, I mean, I don't envy that problem. It is, it is quite something. Um, luckily the technology's come a long ways using AI and predictive, you know, kind of measurement. You can get some form of idea, but at the end of the day, I think it's still just a lot of guesswork and, uh, and guesswork isn't good because yeah, the risk is margin. The risk is actually having money left over at the end of the day. And, and that, yeah, that's a tough problem. So Derek, you mentioned some of the tools, and I think that's a great line of uh, thought we should explore a little bit. Uh, tools for supply chains, tools for tax, tools, et cetera, for those. How about if we just go to the basic e-commerce tool themselves? If, if I don't have an e-commerce platform right now, what are some of the tools I might use to host and open my first online store? What are some of the good ones out there and some of the features that I, I should look for? I'm definitely biased towards Shopify as a platform. Uh, I, I just want to say it. I've studied the top 200, 300 Shopify apps and uh, and Shopify is my bread and butter. So with that said, I'll just say, yeah, I mean, depending on the, the type of merchant and the size of store launching on Shopify and 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 uh, you know even Shopify Plus for merchants has a lot of upward scalability and a lot of apps and connectivity, which is one of the reasons why I do like it and prefer it. But there are some other you know you've got WooCommerce and BigCommerce that are definitely viable and similar competitors to Shopify in the space. And then you've got Magento on the top end of the market, typically, which would be for larger retailers, definitely more for international brands. And in a way, you could say, you know, they're above market on on the simpler Shopify platform. Um, But with that customization that Magento offers, it comes with a significant amount of complexity, which means, for instance, just really simply, Shopify manages your servers. You don't get any access to the Shopify server. 
server. So if you need your own servers for some reason, then you have to go with a different platform. But once you go with Magento, you need a DevOps person to run your store, and that's you know at least $80,000 a year just to, for the person. You also tend to spend more in development when you're on that side. So you know ease and flexibility, the three on the bottom end, um, I guess, WooCommerce, BigCommerce, Shopify. Even below that, you have Wix and Squarespace for smaller merchants, or Rob, in your case, when you're kind of blended online and offline, and and uh, and it's it can be a little bit simpler um, to use, and then also a little bit. You, you don't have to plug as many tools into it, or if you do, the tools can be third-party. But again, what you get from those, from all, all three, Shopify, BigCommerce, and, and WooCommerce, is that the tools have been built specifically to integrate with the e-commerce platform. And I think that's one of the things that you need to be looking for when choosing a platform is either what are my existing tools and how do, how's it going to integrate with this platform, or what tools do I need to be successful Plan and map that out, and most most merchants or, or mo- most people going into e-commerce aren't really mapping that out properly. They're just kind of starting the Shopify store and then figuring out what tools they need, which is you know a little haphazard. But uh, mapping out what tools you think you want based on the growth rate of the company, the investment you can make into this channel, etc., and then you go, okay, what platform is going to be best with that tool set that I'm looking for? Derek, some great points there. Thank you so much for sharing a wide variety of different platforms. And so I think it's important to our users that anybody setting up a site uh, really takes some time to do some research and looks for the best tool to meet their needs. Absolutely. So Robin, let's move into the staffing. We've talked about the online platforms. What did you have to do internally? Did it require more people? Did you have to repurpose people you had? What did you need to do to get up and running on an e-commerce platform? Yeah, sure. So I actually have a staff of people already working for my my brand agency. So I I shifted a lot of their attention over to getting our site up and running and making sure that all of the marketing materials were in place. I would say, though, that one of the first person that we had to hire for our business was a photographer because, you know, imagery is so important. And especially, I don't know, I would imagine it's important for all of e-commerce, but especially in our field where we needed to have both product photos and lifestyle photos, that was one of the main hires that we had. And then at this point, as we are scaling, I'm looking to hire more people to do the fulfillment. I think that's a good problem to have. (laughs) Needing more people because of growth is usually not a bad problem to have, right? (laughs) So we're all looking for, looking for. Rob, what was your experience? It's funny you say photography. Our marketing manager is an, is an amazing photographer, and we have a photographer that comes in occasionally. So I'm totally in sync with you there. Like I'm shocked at at just kind of the poor quality you see out there. And I think that's that's a is an easy, not necessarily easy, but it's an important way to differentiate yourself. And we were, I guess, weirdly fortunate that our taproom was closed, so we had a taproom team that we wanted to keep employed that we did through a combination of PPP loans, but they didn't have anything to do. So we're like, oh, good. Well, we can run this e-commerce program, which they spent a lot of time on. And now, honestly, we're in a little bit of a quandary. Okay, now our, things are opening up again and they've, you know, their, their jobs are, are back. They're, they're actually a lot more busy than they used to be. And we're, we're scrambling to ter- figure out how we, we continue to do this. So we're, I guess we're faced, I came to the same conclusion, we need more people or we need more, more hands in some way. So we're, we're trying to figure that out right now. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your expertise in, in knowledge in e-commerce. Are there any aspects that you wish you knew more about when you started? And what are the things you're trying to improve on or learn as you're going, continuing on your journey? 
you know, it's that thing where you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. I know there's tons of stuff that we could be doing, but I don't even know where to start sometimes. I feel like we have the basic building blocks down and we have a working model, right? But, you know, Derek, you mentioned some things about, uh, again, customer acquisition and making those connections and SEO and that kind of stuff's always been kind of like a black box. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, this, you got to do this, you got to do that. And we do some of it and we feel like, yeah, maybe we're maybe it's working, but um, it also seems like it's constantly evolving. So, the just the mad scramble that is the internet and the gazillion brands out there and other entities trying to get your attention. How do you break through that clutter? So that's something that always just is on my mind. For us, I think that's what it is. It's making those connections online. Rob, you make beer for a living. It's everybody's dream. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, we're experts in that. I'll, I'll tell you that. But yeah. You know, if I could for a second, I on your front here, I think that the the secret to clearing out that clutter starts from understanding the metrics that really matter in the business. And when you have clarity on what metrics you're looking to improve, you have clarity on what to focus on. And of course, we want to sell more beer, right? That's 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 a given. We want growth and all that stuff. Then we have to look at these secondary levers that that do accomplish that. So you can get one customer to buy again. You can get a new customer in the door. You can also get a customer to buy more every time. These are kind of the three main you know kind of levers. Then look at each sub lever within there. And do you want them to buy in person, online? And of course, we've already talked about nurturing the relationship and all of that stuff. So just making sure that, and I'll give you an example. You, you spoke earlier about buying a beer for the person behind you in line. I think it's brilliant. The question is, did it work? Mm-hmm. What are the trackable metrics that you can uh, you can calculate? Is the person that bought the beer for the person behind them more likely to repeat purchase? Is the person that got the free beer more likely to repeat purchase? How do you track that? How do you measure it? How do you improve it? Um, and because it, if it's very successful, then you know there's you you might want to scale it out. Maybe it's two dollars for the free beer behind you because mm. you you realized it works really well. Yeah, um, and so forth and so on. So I think just figuring out how to how to really track these things, and if things aren't trackable, if they're not tangible, you got to put the system in place, or they don't have to be a hundred percent trackable. Because I know we're we're dealing with the online offline model. It doesn't have to be everything is perfectly tracked, but if you can track some of it, it'll give you some idea of what you should be doing. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Those are great points. Oftentimes, as as we all know, you you have an idea, or, or you know, in, mar- in marketing especially, you do something and you're like, it's a great idea. Did it work? I don't know, but I really liked it. And so I'd like to tie in a little bit of that because you're, you're kind of echoing around a theme I think we should address a little bit, right? There's a lot of metrics we can track and we want to track those metrics to see how effective we are and see what's working and do more of the things that are working, do less of the things that don't seem to be, et cetera. But ultimately it comes down to, you know, am I getting a return on investment for my e-commerce platform, right? So how do you measure that? At the end of the day, it's really, you know, your P&L, your profit and loss, right? Because you take a look at the cost, of, for at least for us, it's cost of goods sold and all the, the costs and materials needed for the product itself. In regards to measuring everything else that touches it, we look at attribution. We look at uh, customer lifetime value, how long that they've been a customer. We look at upsell, cross-sell. We look at metrics pretty much every day to make sure that we're sustaining and we set goals by the quarter to make sure that we're overachieving them. And then, of course, in between, if we don't, then what do we need to tweak or what do we need to change or what do we need to stop doing, essentially? That's pretty much how we determine our ROI. It's really black and white for us because we know how much we're putting in and how much we're getting back. We know it's a good thing to do. In other words, 
our model is based on selling to a distributor who sells to a retailer who sells to the end user. There's a lot of steps of margin, right? So okay, we can sell directly to the end user, which, which our e-commerce initiative is. We know we're making money, right? It's just how much. So I think what we, what we need to do, I'm glad you asked the question because it's been on my mind, but now it'll maybe it'll be stepped up a little in priority, is to look over time and say, you know, when we started, we were doing this, and now we're doing this, and chunk it out and be able to say, as we shifted in, you know, shipping costs, and we moved to a different carrier, and we, you know, tried some different things, what and 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 spent different amount different amounts of money on on uh, customer acquisition. How did those things change over time, and establishing some benchmarks or goals? Again, bottom line is I know it's a, it's a good thing uh, because when you can sell sell directly from the fermenter to the glass or the can, there's a decent amount of margin in there. And so Derek, I'd like to kind of talk about that a little bit. Measurements of ROI, as you work with clients, how do you help them understand the ROI of their e-commerce investment? I like how Lynn says it starts with the P&L because that is the, the first thing that everyone has to have is, is good financials in order, in order to know, you know how much we have to invest maybe into testing new channels and strategies for the next quarter. And once you've got a goal and, and your P&L is in order, then we have to go deeper into these secondary and tertiary metrics uh, for both ch- for channels channels for the website itself so just conversion rate you know number of visitors where are they coming from what channels are they coming from how is each channel converting what's my profitability by channel so my cost by channel and and then uh, you know and then revenue by channel in order to understand um, you know, Instagram influencers might drive tons of traffic no sales so right we, we have problems like that. And then I think what a lot of people actually forget is the ROI of the individual tools they might be using. And so a review tool designed to increase social proof on the site, increase conversion rate. How do we justify the cost of this tool and the revenue it's generating? Rob said, you know, he knows that it's a good thing uh, to be moving into e-commerce. And a lot of people would say it's probably a good thing to have a review tool and, and get reviews from customers. How do we quantify the metrics? So there's a few different things. You need to track the people who have given you a review and look at their lifetime value as compared to other cohorts analyses. You, you want to understand your review rate, which is the number of people that are reviewing you. If we think that reviews are going to increase loyalty and retention and lifetime value, then we want to figure out how to increase the number of people that get reviews. And then we also want to look at the conversion rate on the site and how that changes when reviews are presented on the site. And those things are hard things to track. It's really granular, right? It's not the same thing as, as selling beer to a distributor. It's, a, it's, it's, um, it's actually quite tedious, boring, and it gets convoluted very easily just because um, you've got that thing going on, you've got something else going on, and then you forget about it or you got some of the data, but you didn't get all the data for that. And at the end of the day, you know, we talked a little bit about focus. You don't have to go be so granular as I just described, but if you want to improve something, you'd have to look into it. So, like a, instead of a black box, I'll call it the Schrodinger's, you know, box. You, in order to know the state of your loyalty program, the state of your uh, on-site conversion rate, and all of these things, we have to we have to go into the box, look at the metrics, and then say which one of these metrics is the easiest to improve, most leverageable, and and then set some goals somewhere down in there where those goals will, of course, trickle down to revenue goals, which improves the P&L. So a lot of different things to consider, but definitely ways to get measurements that that give you the information you need to make good decisions. Absolutely. So uh, wrap up with just a couple of last closing questions, and we'll do a quick summary here. Knowing what you know today, what advice would you give a company just starting their e-commerce journey? Uh, Rob, why don't you go first on that one? 
to me, I, I think I made this point before, but I think it bears repeating, is, is, is the customer experience on the website. Because it's just so many times you're on a website, whether you're buying something or even like we've had this experience too, just trying to sign in. You have an account already and trying to sign in and they're like, you know, forgot password. And it's like, forget it. I'm not going to deal with that anymore. So, so that experience to me is, that's sort of the key point. That's like going through the front door. And if that door to your store doesn't open, or they have it's they have to bang on it and it's not opening smoothly. Forget it. I'm going to I'm going somewhere else. I think that's a great point too, Rob, because so many platforms out there, so many companies have got that down. We've come to expect it now, right? So if anybody who doesn't meet that level of ease, I can find what I want, I can get it quickly, I can do what I need to do, and get move on with my busy life. That's just so important. I think right on right on target. Yeah, I was just gonna pretty much add on to that and. Also highlight something that Derek had said earlier too. You know, with us, I think it's because we like to play around with technology a lot and test. Don't do that. <laughs> like when you start out a business, don't test different technologies because it's going to just be a much bigger hurdle for you. Like for, for us, we decided to test out different backend systems. We decided to test out different accounting systems. Do you know how many times we had to upload and download CSV files <laughs> just to get it all right? I wouldn't even say it's perfect now, right? We, we've, we're still trying to find that, that, that best technology. And I do realize that it may not exist <laughs> at this point, but we're, we're willing to try and, and still find it. But nonetheless, if you're starting out, don't test. Just do your research and don't do the trial versions. <laughs> just, just stick to something. It's almost, Lynn, like you're saying, don't try to make it perfect. Make it functional because it's going to have to evolve anyway. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Derek, any thoughts on that, that approach? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other reason, Lynn, uh, I think it's a phenomenal point. You just you know, find the tools, get settled. Don't try and change it uh, You know, every other day or you're going to have problems. But spend that energy that you were just talking about on getting the next customer because that's why the business will succeed, not if the tool is the right tool at the end of the day. So I, I, I'm totally with you there. And, um, you know, my thoughts too, I mean, depending on how you're breaking into e-commerce or getting started, if you're coming from a manufacturer standpoint or established business and, it's, and e-commerce is going to be a wing, I think you have a huge leg up over, over other entrants. But every, uh, let's say, new e-commerce entrepreneur or CEO out there, your success is based on three very specific factors. First one is skill. Do you have any? Uh, so Lynn, you mentioned you're a branding expert, which I love and makes you immediately really powerful on the marketing side of the business. And I'm sure there's been a few things on the manufacturing and financial. You're like, oh my gosh, what a headache. But having run an agency myself, I know that, you know, you still had to look at PLs there and figure out, you know, how to afford things. So that clearly gives you the expertise. Uh, and so you have, you have a good amount of skill. So skill is important. The second one is resources. Do you have the cash flow, the capital to actually sustain the business through what I would call, you know, it's initial launch and startup costs. And Rob, this is actually a little bit scarier on your side because even though you've got the established business, launching e-commerce could drain 10, 20, 30, $50,000 pretty easily before you start to really start to pick up customers through that channel. And then you look at your balance sheet and, and your profit and loss at the end of the year and you go, e-commerce is sucking us dry. So there, there's, there's challenges there. And 
And it's, it's sometimes it's tough to get over that hurdle where you're more pro, where you're actually profitable. And sometimes a lot that's why most people fail is because they never actually overcome that hurdle. And then the third and most important factor of all of them, which is market dynamics, which are sometimes within our control and sometimes not within our control. Understanding that in the pandemic people want to drink more, but simultaneously they're not going to our our location. And understanding how that plays into sales forecasting as well as demand for alternative products and, and things like that. And I think combining those three things together, you have to have them all in order to really be successful. Great ideas. Skill, resources, and market dynamics, three keys to keep in mind. So uh, Derek, I'll let you wrap this up with the last question. What advice would you give to people about how they can leverage their online presence to sell better? It's kind of been a theme as we've been talking about throughout, but it's all, it is about user experience and the relationship with the customer. So Rob's cool program about buying a beer for the person behind you, I think it's just altruistic. It's good. You know, it's something that you can do to make your customers just feel loved. And figuring out what that is for your business and, and doing it and doing it well in order to in order to have a great relationship. And even to make it uh, maybe a little bit more tangible, as a result that this com- you know it's customer experience, but customer service. Everyone says they have good customer service. At the end of the day, stellar customer service is mandatory for you. So responding within, uh, if, if it's a live chat, responding within 90 seconds. If it's an email, responding within the same day, making that return purchase easy so that they don't just churn because they're frustrated or replacement. Uh, you know, all of, all of the post-purchase ways that we're going to keep our customer happy, even when they're having a bad time with our product. Excellent points. Stellar customer service, I think, is something you can't possibly minimize. Uh, So to kind of wrap up in a summary here, I think that during our discussion, I've learned at least that e-commerce is a very competitive space. There are a lot of people in it, especially because of the pandemic. Folks have had to find alternate ways of getting to market and trying to keep cash flow and revenue going to keep their businesses afloat. So there's a lot more competition out there. And there are lots of tools and platforms that are available from e-conference websites to some of the analytical tools, lots of different things out there. And it can be a very complex landscape. Research is paramount to being able to be successful if you're going into this. It's important also to connect your e-commerce efforts with your inbound marketing efforts, right? So once you get a customer and get somebody on site, how do I nurture that lead? How do I nurture that relationship to make sure that they're, they feel like they're part of a community and, and that we keep an ongoing relationship? And as Derek mentioned, you know, to be able to sell more uh, or to sell more frequently to that person. And then we talked a little bit about the importance of making it easy the user experience, the customer experience, and their journey through your website. How easy is it, you know, walk in their shoes and figure out what it is that's going to make it the most enjoyable, easy and efficient use of their time to get what they want and get what they need from your site. And then I think we also talked a little bit about, you know, the importance of the look and feel of your site. Uh, make your site attractive and professional. We talked a little bit about the importance of, you know, photography of and product images and things. And, you know, it's almost like you were saying that the quality of the site equals the quality of the product. Right? And, and there's kind of a natural relationship there, but with how we perceive things as you know, consumers. Continuously improve incremental improvements on something functional as opposed to waiting for perfection to launch or waiting for perfection to try to get it done. And then I think that we really wrapped up with you know, two key ideas. Number one, the three success factors, the company's internal skill, resources, and understanding of market dynamics. And of paramount importance and foundational to all of this being successful is the customer service, right? When there are issues, when there are complaints, when there are questions, being very responsive and getting the customer satisfied quickly because ultimately the customer is always right. And if they don't feel like you're treating them that way, they won't be back. 
So Rob, Lynn, and Derek, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your perspectives and insights with me and with our listeners. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you here. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this conversation with Rob Leitner of East Brother Brewing, Lynn Juden of Itsy Bitty, and Derek Haney of e-commerce tech on Is E-Commerce Easy Money? Thank you so much. Have a great day and stay safe and healthy. Thank you for listening to Shifting Gears, a podcast from CMTC. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and post it on your social media platforms. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast directory. For more information on our topic, please visit www.cmtc.com slash shifting gears. CMTC is a private nonprofit organization that provides technical assistance, workforce development, and consulting services to small and medium-sized manufacturers throughout the state of California. CMTC's mission is to serve as a trusted advisor, providing solutions that increase the productivity and competitiveness of California's manufacturers. CMTC operates under a cooperative agreement for the state of California with the Hollings Manufacturing Extension Partnership Program, MEP, at the National Institutes of Standards and Technology within the Department of Commerce. For more information about CMTC, please visit www.cmtc.com. For more information about the MEP National Network or to find your local MEP center, visit www.nist.gov forward slash MEP. 